we continue with the opinion of the court in United States XREL Polanski v. Executive Health Resources, Inc. Part 2. To show why the Third Circuit is right on the first question presented about when the government can make what we'll call a 2A motion, we proceed in two stages, corresponding to two sets of arguments. None of the parties here agrees with the Third Circuit. On the one side, the government and the EHR contend that a 2A motion is always permissible, even if the government has never intervened. Their argument is mainly one from silence. Because paragraph 2 does not explicitly say when it applies, e.g. when the government proceeds with the action or when it elects not to, the provision must apply all the time. On the other side, Polanski, joined by the dissent, contends that the government can make a 2A motion only if it has intervened during the seal period. Polanski understands the dismissal power to arise only when the government assumes primary responsibility for the action. And he does not think that occurs, rather, he thinks the relator remains in control, if the government intervenes later on. To work our way through this thicket, we address the government's first and EHR's theory, then Polanski's and the dissent's. We come out on the other end in the same place as the Third Circuit. Paragraph 2, like paragraph 1, applies only if the government has intervened, but the timing of the intervention makes no difference. So the government can file a 2A motion to dismiss whenever, whether during the seal period or later, it has intervened. Section A. Even taken alone, paragraph 2 refutes the idea that it applies regardless of intervention. When the government has chosen not to intervene in a KETAM suit, it is, by definition, not a party. And non-parties typically cannot do much of anything in a lawsuit. To be sure, a KETAM action is an unusual creature. Even as a non-party, the government retains an interest in the suit and possesses specified rights. But paragraph 2, unlike other FCA provisions, does not say that it applies when the government is a non-party so the government can prevail on its argument only by implication. And the implication does not fit. The paragraph's first two provisions, subparagraphs 2a and 2b, grant the government uncommon, even extraordinary power to dismiss and settle an action over the objection of the person who brought it. That sort of authority would be odd to house in an entity that is taking no part in indeed has continually declined to join, a case. And still more conclusive, the paragraph's next two provisions presuppose that the government has in fact intervened. Subparagraph 2c enables the court to restrict the relator's role when needed to prevent interference with, wait for it, the government's prosecution of the case. And subparagraph 2D allows the court to restrict the relator's participation if the defendant would otherwise suffer an undue burden. The premise is, again, that the government has joined the case, 
else a court would be limiting the role of the defendant's sole adversary. Zoom out to the rest of Section 3730C and the government's intervention is irrelevant view looks even weaker. Above paragraph 2 is, you guessed it, paragraph 1, which begins and ends in telling ways. Recall that paragraph 1 starts by announcing that it applies only if the government proceeds with the action, something that everyone agrees cannot happen unless the government intervenes. In that event, the paragraph says the government assumes primary responsibility for the suit. But still, the paragraph concludes, the relator may continue as a party subject to the limitations set forth in paragraph 2. That last subject to phrase links paragraph 2 to paragraph 1. It says that when the paragraph 1 situation obtains, the relator's continuing role will be limited in the ways set forth in paragraph 2. And once again, the paragraph 1 situation obtains only when the government has intervened. So that is also when paragraph 2's provisions, including the one about dismissal, kick in. In other words, the express intervention prerequisite of paragraph 1 carries forward into paragraph 2 through the subject to clause, connecting the two. Only when paragraphs 3 and 4 are reached does the necessity of intervention drop away. Recall that they apply, respectively, when the government elects not to proceed, and whether or not the government proceeds. By contrast, paragraph 2 is explicitly hooked to paragraph 1, which applies only when the government proceeds. And just to pile on a bit, the government's alternative construction would create surplusage twice over. Consider first the whether or not introductory clause of paragraph 4, noted just above. On the government's view, that clause has no function. A provision lacking it would otherwise apply whether or not the government chose to intervene. The government essentially concedes the point, urging only that paragraph's four preface is the sort of redundancy that is common in statutory drafting. Similarly for the subject to paragraph two proviso in paragraph one. On the government's view, Congress need not have included that language because every QITAM action, not just those described in paragraph 1, is subject to paragraph 2's limits. Again, the government's only response is that Congress sometimes includes language that could be viewed as redundant. Yes, sometimes. But on top of everything else, the government's double violation of the interpretive principle that every clause and word of a statute should have meaning dooms the view that paragraph 2 applies even when the government has not intervened. The paragraph does not then apply, which means that the government cannot then file a 2A motion to dismiss. Section B. At the same time, a straightforward reading of the FCA refutes Polanski's and the dissent's position that paragraph 2, and also paragraph 1, applies only when the government's intervention occurs during the seal period. Recall the way the statute works. The government can intervene at that early time, 
but so too it can intervene at a later date upon a showing of good cause. The consequence of a successful motion to intervene in the FCA context, as in any other, is to turn the movement into a party. And once the government becomes a party, it, alongside the relator, does what parties do. It proceeds with the action. That quoted phrase, you'll recall, is the trigger for paragraph 1. When the government proceeds with the action, it assumes primary responsibility for the case's prosecution. And as shown above, whenever that is true, paragraph 2 kicks in too. So the right to dismiss under subparagraph 2a attends a later intervention, just as it does an earlier one. Either way, the government becomes a party, proceeding with the action, so either way, it acquires the right to dismiss. Polanski's contrary argument echoed in the dissent mainly relies on the clause in paragraph 3 telling the court that it may not limit the status and rights of the relator when it approves a post-seal period intervention motion. That clause, he says, prevents the court from giving the government primary responsibility over the suit, including the power to dismiss. But on that reading, the paragraph 3 clause would effectively negate paragraphs 1 and 2. The paragraph 3 clause would prevent the government, even though now proceeding with the case, from acquiring the control that paragraphs 1 and 2 afford in that circumstance. Polanski's construction would thus put the statute at war with itself. The statute would direct one result, the government assuming the primary role upon intervening, while telling the court not to allow that state of affairs. The better reading makes the instruction to the court congruent with the background operation of the statute. The clause tells the court not to impose additional extra-statutory limits on the relator when granting the government's post-seal period motion to intervene. In that way, paragraph 3 ensures that the government will get no special benefit from the court's involvement in a later intervention. The parties will occupy the same positions as they would have if the government had intervened in the seal period. That seal agnostic view of intervention's effects also fits the FCA's government-centered purposes. In Polanski's proposed world, the government has primary control of the action if it intervenes in the seal period, but the relator has primary control if the intervention occurs later on. But in both cases, the government's interest in the suit is the same, and is the predominant one. That interest is typically to redress injuries against the government through a suit brought in the government's name, or else, as here, that interest is to obtain dismissal of the suit because it will likely cost the government more than it's worth. Either way, that interest does not diminish in importance because the government waited to intervene. Congress decided not to make seal period intervention an on-off switch. It knew that circumstances could change and new information come to light, so Congress enabled the government in the protection of its own interests, to reassess key TAM actions and change its mind. 
When it does so, nothing about the statute's objectives suggests that the government should have to take a back seat to its co-party relator. The suit remains, as it was in the seal period, one to vindicate the government's interests. Part 3 We thus arrive at this case's second question. When the government, having properly intervened, seeks to dismiss an FCA action over a relator's objection, what standard should a district court use to assess the motion? The Third Circuit held that the appropriate standard derives from Federal Rule 41A, which governs voluntary dismissals in ordinary civil litigation. Under that rule, the standard varies with the case's procedural posture. If the defendant has not yet served an answer or summary judgment motion, the plaintiff need only file a notice of dismissal. But once that threshold has been crossed, as in this case, dismissal requires a court order on terms that the court considers proper. Again, both the government and Polanski object from different directions. The government thinks it has essentially unfettered discretion to dismiss. Polanski proposes a complicated form of arbitrary and capricious review with a burden-shifting component. But again, the Third Circuit's Goldilocks position is the legally right one. A district court should assess a 2A motion to dismiss using Rule 41's standards. And in most FCA cases, as the Court of Appeals suggested, those standards will be readily satisfied. The reason for alighting on Rule 41 is not complicated. The federal rules are the default rules in civil litigation, and nothing warrants a departure from them here. As Rule 1 states, these rules govern the procedure in all civil actions and proceedings in the United States District Courts, with specified exceptions not relevant here. Of course, Congress may override that command when it wishes, but we do not lightly infer that Congress has done so, and silence on the subject is seldom enough. Here, nothing in the FCA suggests that Congress meant to accept QI-TAM actions from the usual voluntary dismissal rule. To the contrary, the FCA's many cross-references to the rules suggest that their application is the norm. And this court has made clear that various rules not specifically mentioned, in particular those dealing with discovery, also matter. The federal rules apply in FCA litigation in courts across the country every day. There is no reason to make an exception for the one about voluntary dismissals. The application of Rule 41 in the FCA context will differ in two ways from the norm. The first pertains to procedure. The FCA requires notice and an opportunity for a hearing before a subparagraph 2A dismissal can take place, so the district court must use that procedural framework to apply Rule 41's standards. The second pertains to the set of interests the court should consider in ruling on a post-answer motion. In non-FCA cases, Rule 41A2's proper terms analysis focuses on the defendant's interests. The court mainly addresses whether that party's commitment of time and money mitigates against dismissal. 
but in the FCA context, the proper terms assessment is more likely to involve the relator. For all relators faced with a 2A motion want their actions to go forward, and many have, by then, committed substantial resources. Part of the district court's task is to consider their interests. The Third Circuit, though, was right to note that 2A motions will satisfy Rule 41 in all but the most exceptional cases. This court has never set out a grand theory of what that rule requires, and we will not do so here. The inquiry is necessarily contextual, and in this context, the government's views are entitled to substantial deference. A Ketam suit, as we have explained, is on behalf of and in the name of the government. The suit alleges injury to the government alone, and the government, once it has intervened, assumes primary responsibility for the action. Given all that, a district court should think several times over before denying a motion to dismiss. If the government offers a reasonable argument for why the burdens of continued litigation outweigh its benefits, the court should grant the motion, and that is so even if the relator presents a credible assessment to the contrary. In light of those principles, this case is not a close call. A district court's Rule 41 order is generally reviewable under an abuse of discretion standard, and the Third Circuit properly applied that standard here. But in the interest of providing guidance, it might be useful for us to put that standard of review to the side and simply to say that the district court got this one right. The government, in moving to dismiss, enumerated the significant costs of future discovery in the suit, including the possible disclosure of privileged documents. At the same time, the government explained in detail why it had come to believe that the suit had little chance of success on the merits. Polanski vigorously disputed the latter point, claiming that the government was leaving billions of dollars of potential recovery on the table. But that competing assessment, the district court thought, could not outweigh the government's reasonable view of the suit's costs and benefits. We agree. The government gave good grounds for thinking that this suit would not do what all key TAM actions are supposed to do, vindicate the government's interests. Absent some extraordinary circumstance, that sort of showing is all that is needed for the government to prevail on a 2A motion to dismiss. Part 4. The government may move to dismiss an FCA action under subparagraph 2A whenever it has intervened, whether during the seal period or later on. The applicable standards for deciding such a motion are those set out in Federal Rule 41. Under that rule, the government was entitled to dismiss this KETAM action. We therefore affirm in all respects the judgment below. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of this opinion. Until next episode... Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.